and welcome to The Gold Podcast. I'm your host, Helena Beer, the editor of Gold, and I'm delighted to be bringing you another great episode. Now, last week I introduced my new co-host, Isabel, and unfortunately she has succumbed to one of the particularly nasty colds that have started to circulate. She's currently taking care of herself at home. It's definitely that time of year, isn't it? I know my commute to and from the office is now soundtracked by coughs and sniffles, so I'll see how long my immune system can hold them off. Um, But for now, it's just me on the podcast and Isabel will be back next week with a brilliant interview. It's an exclusive look at the next issue of gold that's coming out at the end of the month so not one to miss but back to today I'll be bringing you an interview with Paul Sims CEO of Impatient Health. It's always a pleasure to speak to Paul he's a friend of the podcast and has appeared on a few episodes over the years but this time we're speaking to him about farmers reputation and this is something that Isabel wrote about for the most recent issue of gold and we really wanted to delve deeper into this topic which as Paul mentions is becoming more and more of a prominent discussion point across the industry and beyond. I think part of that is to do with the increase in farmers' reputation during the COVID-19 pandemic and the fact that the positivity didn't really hang around for that long. It proved that it's not all doom and gloom for farmer. There's more to the industry than the media and pop culture give them credit for. But before we get into all that, let's take a look back at the past week or so in news you might have missed. Leo Farmer has made its way into the news with its new global awareness campaign, AD Days Around the World, which highlights the experiences of people living with atopic dermatitis, the most common form of eczema. Collaborating with patient advocacy groups across Germany, Italy, France and Spain, the campaign shares real patient stories to educate and inform people living with AD that there is hope. The campaign follows patient advocate Ashley Ann Laura across the world as she meets and documents the stories of four women living with the condition through documentary style footage. As Ashley says, AD is about more than just skin, so hopefully this campaign can help people living with the condition to improve their daily lives. In other news, collaboration between the pharmaceutical industry and academia is growing, according to a survey from the ABPI. The data shows that the industry is increasingly supporting student training and research placements, notably so at apprenticeship level. The number of apprentices being trained by pharma companies is at its highest ever, 825. That's up by roughly a third since 2019. Undergraduate placements have also increased by more than 16% since 2019 and postdoctoral jobs have since doubled. Andrew Croydon, ABPI's Director of Examinations, Skills and Education Policy, said there are huge benefits from collaboration between industry and academia. This includes the practical, like sharing of resources and the ability to use academic knowledge to solve real-world problems in industry. There are also tangible benefits, like demystifying each other's sectors and building networks with diverse teams from different scientific backgrounds. This is great news for both the sector and academia, forging clear pathways into the industry for the next generation of pharma talent. 
And finally, my favourite piece of news, which incidentally links in perfectly to our interview topic of a farmer's reputation in pop culture. I love it when that happens. Pfizer and the Avengers assembled, if you'll pardon the pun, um, last week to promote COVID-19 vaccination efforts in the US. The pharma giant commissioned the Avengers publisher Marvel to create a comic encouraging vaccination in the US where rates of hesitancy remain relatively high. Within the comic strip story, a family are seen patiently awaiting their vaccinations in a clinic while the Avengers fight their fantastical foe Ultron outside. As the battle draws nearer, the patients worry that this impending doom might reach them, but they remain confident that the Earth's heroes will protect them before any harm reaches their door. This quite blatant allegory of the pandemic illustrates that when viruses evolve, researchers gather information and take time to innovate and adapt, and then they figure out how to fight it, putting together their existing knowledge and research along with the new information they've learned. The comic ends with a patient commenting that the Avengers are doing their part to keep us safe. Now it's time for us to do ours by staying up to date with our COVID-19 vaccinations. This is a brilliant collaboration and hopefully we'll see more positive representations of pharma in comic strips and beyond soon. Now it's time for this week's interview, which this time is with Paul Sims, the CEO of Inpatient Health. A well-known face on the pharma conference circuit, Paul is passionate about provoking meaningful change in order to realise the huge unfulfilled potential of the industry and life sciences as a whole. Perhaps best known for his 17 years at the helm of IFA Pharma, which was acquired by Reuters in 2019, he created some of the pharmaceutical industry's largest and most influential events. In 2020, he set up Impatient Health, an industry think tank and consultancy that aims to help pharma become more ambitious and creative. He's definitely a pharma disruptor. We had a great chat about pharma's reputation in the media and pop culture, considering its current state, its progression, or you could say its rise and fall over the past few years, and his top tips for pharma in recovering and bolstering that reputation. After we finished recording, Paul said that it all sounded very doom and gloom, but I think to put a positive spin on it, it offers a huge amount of opportunity to farmer. And so we encourage everyone to get involved and take on some of Paul's suggestions. So without further ado, let's have a listen. Paul, hi, thank you so much for coming in to the Gold Podcast Studio. Um, You last joined us in April 2021 to talk about pursuing innovation in pharma, I think. So today we're turning our attention from that to farmers' reputation. We covered this topic in our latest Gold Cover feature, which you contributed to, and we'll link that for our listeners in the show notes. And I really wanted to dig deeper into this with you today. But before we do, um, how are you? What have you been up to? I'm tired, but I'm good. Thank you so much for the introduction. Uh, yeah, I'm having a lot of fun. Uh, I've uh, been running my company for nearly two years and get involved in all sorts of uh, crazy adventures, having a great time. So thank you. Sounds brilliant. So let's get to it. Um, so when it comes to farmers' reputation, I think it's fair to say that it's never really been portrayed well in the media or in pop culture. And I guess my first and quite simple question is is why is that why what do you think the reason is so simple so simple indeed (laughs) and uh, of course just a flick of a magic wand and uh, we could all change it if only it were that easy Um, we've uh, I think we have ourselves to blame in many ways it's very easy to point at 
you know, the conditions, the external environment that we have to operate in. But I do think that much of it is our own doing. Um, we are opaque as an industry. Mm-hmm. We are poorly understood. We hide behind our corporate logos. Um, nobody really knows exactly what happens. And of course, uh, typically the news you do see is something about you know profiteering or, or, or exploiting the patient population in some way. So is it really a surprise, particularly when we know that bad news is the type that sells, that uh, our industry is portrayed as as the bad guy? We are an easy target. It is um, incredibly easy and incredibly believable when pharma is portrayed in, in, in a bad light because it plays on all of our dark fantasies and ideas about the industry. Mm. Uh, so I, I, I don't think that's um, uh, a surprise. But of course, what could we do about it? I am constantly reminded that actually we do know how to create trust in our personal lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if I was to go on a date and read out my my CV to or my my <laughs> resume uh, as I arrived on on said date and and listed out my benefits and my features and my <laughs> my uh, accomplishments. I don't think that date would go very well. I don't know about you, um, but um, I don't think that uh, that sort of inhuman approach uh, works. We know what works uh, in order to build trust and to gain a positive rapport, and it's to be human. It's Absolutely. to be normal. It's to show the flaws as well as the mm. benefits. And um, you know, um, there is uh, actually a way out of this, and uh, we have, as I say, portrayed ourselves badly ourselves. Mm. Absolutely, yeah, and we'll we'll come more on to that a little bit later on. Um, so, Dope Sick hit TV screens in 2021, as did films like Sweet Girl, the infamous miniseries The Dropout was released earlier this year about the Theranos controversy. I know there have been negative storylines in programmes like Grey's Anatomy and Chicago Med recently too. The list is seemingly endless. Um, why do you think we've seen such a spike in negative portrayals of pharma recently well um it's true that we had a brief moment uh in the the in the positive world shall we say but we're we're doing we're recording this in october 2022 and as far as i understand i've never actually worked uh behind the scenes in a tv or film studio but these projects are often conceived sometime in advance mm. they are um, multi-year projects and uh, obviously storyline uh, and narrative is one of the first thing that gets decided, although sometimes watching these Hollywood blockbusters, you'd wonder <laughs> if that actually happened. Absolutely. But um, it's definitely um, the case that um, this media representation uh, is still a very easy to play on one. So two things, really. Firstly, um, we, have, we are creatures of habit and we have in many ways lost much of that good reputation mm. already. So we have already shifted back. And irrespective of the the uh, good work, which of course made the one percent of our industry that it was on the front lines in in COVID nineteen uh, shine very brightly, mm-hmm. the ninety nine percent of us who who weren't uh, on that front line uh, very much um, had a brief moment, but 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 didn't actually make a huge amount of change. I don't think that this is going to go away. I'm afraid to say. Mm. I think this is something that we're continuing to play on, and we have seen communications departments. We've seen the approach to to um, corporate reputation and how we go about it very much fall back into line with how it was previously. Mm. I would actually argue we haven't unfortunately learned a great deal. That's such a shame. Um, you mentioned that that it's already shifted back. And I think potentially some of these kind of 
negative representations in pop culture are are to blame. Um, but how how far do you think the public is influenced by the things that they see on TV? I would argue there is no greater influence than what we see in the media generally. Uh, I would say it's the the underlying subtlety of it, the kind of uh, insidious nature of how it pervades. It's mm. like an unconscious bias that we often talk about with, of course, gender or race stereotyping mm. or, or other types of stereotyping. It's this this constant assumption that there's the bad person in the room and that bad yeah. person is inevitably someone working in the life sciences industry. <laughs> and we all know, you know, if you want to study this, of course, we've all seen how nudge theory can be one of the most powerful yeah, uh, uh, tools for persuasion and influence. Uh, and I think it's uh, perhaps a, a less deliberate form of, of nudge theory, but certainly it's those constant reminders that, you know, in the same way that girls are pink and boys and blue, mm-hmm. it's it's something that happens early in our lives in a in a in a subconscious or, or not certainly not very obvious manner and pervades throughout society. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It's that continual reinforcement, isn't it? It definitely doesn't help. Um I remember that there was a survey earlier this year, I think it was back in May from Patient View, showing that farmers' reputation among patient advocacy groups was continuing to improve. It was something like 60% describing farmers' corporate reputation as excellent or good um, compared to, I think it was just over a third in 2016. And I think that, that really shows the difference in perception between patients and the general public. I know you've spoken before about the fact that if you're directly impacted by something in terms of quality of life, then your view of that is going to be a lot higher than if you're not. So the wider public, not all of whom will be dependent on farmers' innovations, will likely have a different view to patients. And I was wondering if you could kind of expand on that a little bit more in terms of um, farmers' reputation. If you work in marketing, you will generally, unless you're working on an incredibly mainstream product, you will, of course, segment your audience. Mm -hmm. Um, You will realize that this is not for everybody. And historically, I think that the farmer industry has relied on that fact to not worry too much about its reputation. Who cares if the general public perception is poor Mm. when the people that you're appealing to are the ones that are sick with a specific disease? Uh, And that's been very much a way of of a modus operandi. It's a way of almost ignoring Mm -hmm. The, uh, the sort of uh, pitchforks uh, outside the window um, for the industry in general. I think that actually reputation is starting to matter more and more. And that's kind of the point. It's, it's why we're perhaps having this conversation. It's why mm-hmm. we uh, are talking about it. We even saw during the COVID um, pandemic that the public, uh, the public perception and the public importance of getting a vaccine was so pervasive that mm. it actually affect the, the market access decisions, if you like, the pricing and yeah. reimbursement decisions that were made. I would even argue it was the greatest factor mm. in those decisions, possibly even more, well, I can't say it's above the clinical efficacy, of course, <laughs> but second, a close second yeah. uh, to, to how those rollouts um, performed and were determined. Mm. So we've just seen in the last couple of years an example of where reputation had a very material effect on the actual business of what we do. Now, Mm. COVID was, of course, a special case and will continue to be. But to think that somehow the public and the health technology assessment community are completely disconnected is, I think, a fallacy. Mm. It is absolutely now worth it for us to invest, to be aware of, and to, um, to to make a significant quantifiable effort towards improving our reputation. And 
the funny thing is that it doesn't necessarily require a huge financial investment. Mm. It requires an investment of a different type, a change investment, a transformation and a mindset investment to become more human, as I've said. And mm. uh, particularly with Generation Z or Z, uh, the new generation, this is a generation that cares far less about brand than any other generation before. They care more about the authenticity, the shareability and the virality than the story itself, mm. which is uh, a very interesting change so if you cannot you know prove yourself irrespective of how good your story is you can't prove that it came from a a real place Mm -hmm. and a great origin then i'm afraid you're not going to get much traction with the with the younger generation and i think that's therefore an inevitable uh, change that we're going to see over the next few years that this will become more and more important and more and more a part of our everyday language absolutely yeah so looking at that in a little bit more detail um what what are the first steps that pharma needs to take? Obviously, change isn't an easy thing to bring about. Um, so would you have any kind of top tips or ideas on how um, pharma can kind of promote itself in a more positive light to, to the public and patients alike? Well, yes, I said it was um, potentially not financially uh, significant, mm. but certainly uh, is, is significant <laughs> in other forms of investment. Didn't say it was going to be easy. Uh, I think that the first thing, and I guess that's the point of, of talking today, is just the recognition, mm-hmm. the recognition that it is worth it and yeah, important absolutely. to do it. Uh, worth it indeed if we claim to be positive forces for society, that this is something that we have to and should do but also sustainably, it's a way of making sure our companies perform financially successfully uh, in the longer term. So I think just that recognition as a starting point. Secondly, I think we need a very good assessment of uh, a risk benefit uh, analysis, because Mm -hmm. at the moment, it's so easy to say no. Nobody, unfortunately, loses their job in our industry by saying no. Nobody loses their job by doing the same thing that we did last year. It's actually a pervasive issue that affects almost everything within our companies. And certainly for those that put themselves above the parapet, typically the leaders of the organization, it is far, far safer to say less than to say more. You're talking to somebody who ran events for 17 years and getting (laughs) senior leaders to come along and actually be honest on stage was a perennial challenge. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. You can imagine. So um, I think there has to be a risk-benefit analysis, a reset. It's funny, when I talk to corporate communications departments on a one-to-one basis, they always agree with me. They are tired, they are sick of having to toe that safe line every Mm. single day of their lives, having to to, to push their leaders back from the brink, as it were, Mm. um, and just wish that there could be a more balanced approach. Yes, I'm not talking about being gung-ho. I'm not talking about breaking regulations. I'm even not talking about doing things that could be risky on this front and asking Mm. for uh, for forgiveness later. I am talking about a full assessment of nowadays uh, what it uh, takes to actually be more forthcoming. And the funny Mm. thing is, so much of what we do around compliance and regulation is subjective, not objective. It's about the company's interpretation, its own risk mm. profile. I think that risk profile should change. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so we've talked a lot about um, the the kind of pop culture element of reputation. And I think, obviously, the we've said the 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 bad stories are, are the ones that often sell. Um, but how far do you think it's the responsibility of pharma to influence 
the filmmakers and TV producers? Should they be approaching them, pitching them positive story arcs and trying to change that narrative through their own sort of powerful storytelling? Um, and I guess there's another question there of would they do that? Obviously, based on what you've just said, I think it might be might be a stretch. But what's your take on that? I read a statistic recently which said that, and you're going to find this painful given your profession, <laughs> that the number of as the number of journalists in the world has diminished, the number of people working in corporate communications has tripled. Right. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, there are entire industries within industries of people mm. trying to produce those so-called positive stories and have TV and media editors pick them up. Mm. Uh, and in many ways, it's the job of a media editor almost sort of to shift, to, to sift all of those sort of uh, slightly weak stories, if I can mm. put them that way, of endless positivity. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, you sit down for a, for a TV show and you don't want endless idealistic positivity to be fed to you. It's just mm. not an interesting story. We, again, we know this <laughs> stuff in our personal lives. I really believe that the art of storytelling, both from a utopian and a dystopian point of view, is a skill that we uh, perhaps never had, but we've certainly lost mm -hmm. within our industry. I think that if you can show stories of, of hardship, of breakthrough, of difficulty, the truth is that anything worth creating always has a dip. It's never a straight line. There's mm -hmm. always a, a difficult moment. And to be honest and open about those difficulties, I think have gained far greater traction yeah. with, with media. Uh, particularly given the obvious things we already know and we've already talked about, such as the fact that bad news sells. So mm. positive stories can end up very positive at the end, even if they involve hardship. In fact, it's the classic rags to riches, difficulty, hardship story. So we know yeah. these things. We know these things. But have you ever seen anything negative written in a farmer press release? It's a very good point, And the answer would be no. <laughs> Well, you know, I don't think we're doing a very good job. I think no. that we are doing things the way we've always done mm. because it's the only thing we know how to do. And yeah. it's just another example and another source of frustration for me, certainly, that this is something that we refuse to, uh, to learn from because we're so narrow-minded and siloed in the way that we approach our work in this industry. Mm. Talking about that kind of siloing, is there a way, do you think, that pharma can be more collaborative in this sense and I know sort of um, patient groups and, and collaborating there would might be an obvious choice but is there is there a way that that pharma can break out of that silo? I spoke to Pfizer um, about a year into the uh, COVID uh, crisis uh, inquiring about um, whether they had uh, involved and collaborated with anyone in terms of telling the amazing story mm. that they were obviously in the midst of. And they told me that they were in the midst of producing not one, not two, but three documentaries concurrently at that time. Wow. So I think that actually, uh, and the way those stories were described to me, they were very much, um, they were collaborations. They were collaborations between uh, patient groups. There were collaborations between even some of the naysayers and, and vaccine mm. deniers and, uh, and all the rest of it. Uh, and of course, filmmakers and the positive uh, people from, from the pharma company and from government that wanted to be uh, promotional when it came to the vaccine. So um, yes, I do think that uh, I'm re reminded by my friend, 
Brian Smith, Professor Brian Smith, a good friend, who uh, describes the evolution of our industry by actually comparing it to evolutionary biology and talking about how the DNA of organisms and the DNA of companies are actually very similar in how they operate. So if pharma wants to do something different, Mm. just like if I wanted to be able to fly, I can't just flap my arms. My DNA is is not adapted to that (laughs) habitat. And the only way of perhaps becoming uh, uh, able to fly is some, and I'm going to put a horrible image into your mind now here, <laughs> of some strange pseudo beast that I could create from from mating with or somehow <laughs> collaborating with some kind of flying animal. I laugh, but but it's it's um, it's true that the only mm-hmm. way of changing your DNA is through yeah. exactly what you said, collaboration. So mm-hmm. just through force of will we are not going to be able to change the nature of our companies mm. overnight in the Absolutely. same way that we're not able to you know, become great tour de forces in um, digital health overnight either. It's mm. a different DNA, set of DNA. It's a different model. The only way that we can become anything different is through collaboration. I wouldn't mm. just say it's desirable, it's necessary. Yeah. Absolutely. That's really interesting. Thank you. So to sum up, um, why do you think the pharma industry struggles to be real as it were with the public and what would you say are your kind of top tips for dealing with this we've we've kind of touched on quite a few different areas but if you could kind of um, explain it in a nutshell as a a final takeaway Uh, the answer to your question is a mixture of fear and comfort which might sound paradoxical (laughs) but the truth is we fear the change and we're very comfortable Mm. in our relatively well-paid industry we don't have to change So if you, uh, as a leader, perhaps someone listening to this um, podcast, feel um, energized to want to change, I think it's our job to turn up the heat a little. Mm. We have to show that the the platform is indeed burning. We even have to to get the matches out and light it, perhaps. I see my role uh, in this industry. uh, Some some have called me a pharma provocateur. I used to think I was basically just a pest, uh, (laughs) irritating everybody. But as time has gone on, I've realized I actually... Uh, and playing an important role, um, (laughs) which is to do exactly what I've just said, show our industry Mm. that all is not well, that um, complacency is an evil uh, that must be fought. And, you know, we've obviously seen plenty of examples in companies like Blockbuster and Kodak of where complacent has been far more uh, painful than Mm. it perhaps will be for us. We have to almost artificially um, but not artificially create that that um, that that real fear. And anyone who's a student of Clay Christensen, who wrote the Innovators' Dilemma, will be very familiar with how quickly uh, we fail to take new ideas seriously, and how quickly they can disrupt us uh, mm. where 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 that may happen. So I think that um, I don't like to say we should uh, live our lives according to the stick rather than the carrot. But it is absolutely necessary that that, that uh, sense of we can't stay rooted to what we always know mm. is the, the mindset that pervades our every day within our industry. So that is not very specific, I realize. <laughs> I apologize for that. But I think it's also the first and most necessary step. And of course, from there, you can determine your, your strategy from that. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, that is a very good note to end on. And yes, brings us to the end of uh, my questions. So thank you so much for joining me today, Paul. It's been a pleasure. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. And as I say, there's lots of thought provoking takeaways for pharma companies there. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. I'll try and be more positive next time. <laughs> we will look forward to it. Thank you so much. Thank you.
And that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you so much to Paul for joining us and thanks to you for listening. Do be sure to rate, comment and most importantly, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on next week's episode. We'll be bringing you, as I mentioned, a sneak peek into the next issue of Gold with an exclusive look, or I guess it's technically a listen, um, to our Catalyst interview. Isabel spoke to Rashima Kemps-Polanco, Executive Vice President and US Head at Novartis Oncology, about her journey from army cadet to pharma leader, her passion for making a difference, and how she believes diversity can be improved internally and externally in pharma. It's a fabulous conversation, so do make sure to tune in. For now, it's goodbye from me, and Isabel and I will be back next week, so we'll see you then. Mm-hmm.